Entrepreneurship is part of the American dream, and it is booming. A record 5.4 million new businesses were started last year as workers across the country struck out on their own, searching for a different path to a fulfilling career and economic mobility. But that road isn't always a smooth one for some new business owners who hit roadblocks, such as access to financial capital, lack of a strong social network, and other barriers to success. In this special four-part Work in Progress series, Economic Mobility Through Entrepreneurship, we'll look at those headwinds and solutions. We'll hear directly from entrepreneurs and get advice from leaders in business, education, and government to learn how entrepreneurship can be a fulfilling and profitable career choice and a boon to a community. Episode 2, Access to Capital. According to research by the Kauffman Foundation, in 2021, one out of 10 new entrepreneurs in the U.S. were Black. Around 1 in 14 were Asian American. One quarter were Hispanic. And more than half were White. The percentage of entrepreneurs from underrepresented racial and ethnic backgrounds is growing, but they still have significant barriers to accessing the capital they need to start and grow their businesses. The counselors at the school who were helping other kids map out the rest of their lives. Typically, like the brown kids were kind of left out of these conversations and I didn't get very good ACT scores or, you know, these other requirements to even go to college. So to be very honest, I knew my chances of getting into college were going to be very slim to none. (laughs) Kelly Holmes is from the Lakota tribe on the Cheyenne River Reservation in South Dakota and now lives in Denver. She's the founder of the multimedia company Native Max New Media and the editor-in-chief of Native Max Magazine. But fresh out of high school, she didn't know what she wanted to do, and college wasn't in the cards. She landed a gig as a model and quickly found some small success when she was hired to appear at runway fashion shows. Holmes decided to create a platform to provide an avenue for Native people wanting to pursue fashion. There was already a small community of Native people doing their own fashion shows and designing their own clothes. Holmes wanted to give these artists a bigger platform, a safe and supportive one. But exactly what that would look like, how to build it, and importantly, how to get the money to do it, were open questions. For the money part, it was bootstrapping and side hustles. I taught myself how to do graphic design, social media marketing, digital marketing, web design, consultation, event planning. So all of these different things I taught myself how to do. So then I can go out there and get contract work. And then whatever money that I made on the side, I would just go ahead and reinvest it into the magazine. Whenever we did sell partnerships or ad spaces, instead of giving myself a cut, I invested it into Native Max. I needed like a laptop. I had to build my own audience. I had to build my own customer base and supportive community because no one needs a native fashion magazine in their life. So how can I create my own audience for this? By doing that, I had to travel and network and get out there and talk to people. And even then that costs money, you know, it costs money to drive somewhere and to park and to eat and to network, like it all costs money. And she was also a mom at the time with two young kids. Even when she did have the money to travel and build her network, there were frustrations. Going to these different 
workshops and seminars, you know, free resources for small business owners to grow their business or whatever throughout here in Denver. You know, as soon as I walked into a room, I look different. I sound different. I act different. When someone would ask me my business idea and I would say, hey, I want to build a platform for Native people, Indigenous people pursuing fashion, like a Vogue or an Elle magazine, but for Native people. It's for Native people by Native people. Nobody would get it. Everyone would say, I don't know if that's a viable idea. And it wasn't something that, you know, would take off or would work. One of my first news articles I've ever had written about me talking about, hey, this girl wants to start the first Native fashion magazine. But does she realize, though, after five years, most businesses flop? So right away, you know, encouraging me, but right after that, giving me statistics. Why is that? Why can't you just write what I want to do? Why do you have to follow it up with statistics? But historically, that's kind of how Native people are viewed. You know, they're some of the poorest people in the country. They are located on some of the poorest counties with low employment rate. But we are rich in culture. We are rich in language and heritage. But I found a way because I was determined I had a passion And I promised myself I'm going to learn everything that I can. And I am very stubborn. So like Native women, we are very, very stubborn. We cannot be told no. But even determination isn't enough for any entrepreneur. They need some help, some mentorship, some funding, even some advice along the way. Holmes's help came from another Lakota businesswoman who became her mentor, helping open doors and make connections. Her name is Shadena Sultan. At the time, she was the executive director of the Rocky Mountain Indian Chamber of Commerce. And Sultan had some advice to pay it forward. She said, you know, once you get to a place where you don't have to work as hard, your business is going to work for you. When you get to that place, you made it. But you're going to have to turn back around, reach out, and help everyone that you can also to make it. It just, it really did click for me. And that's something that I continue to do to this day. As for funds that could help her business grow faster, Holmes had some offers, but sometimes she had to turn them down. I built my business with the same values and virtues that I instill in my life. And they come from our Lakota. There's generosity and there's respect, compassion, and humility and kinship. So everything that we do moving forward has to align with my values and virtues. And if it doesn't, I can't say yes to anything or anyone. And that's another another way that makes indigenous entrepreneurs different is because a lot of us do incorporate our values and virtues into our business. We don't want to sacrifice that. Although she didn't rely on seed funding or big benefactors, she's built Native Max into a thriving business with a steady stream of income from ads, partnerships, and magazine sales without compromising her values. When you look at the family wealth of white families compared to Black families, compared to Latinx, and then Native families, Native families are literally somewhere around 12,000 to 20,000 annual revenue if they're on a reservation compared to a white family who's at an average of about 170,000. We have to change those statistics. And the only way to do it is significant shifts of capital. 
That's Valerie Redhorse Mole. She's of Cherokee ancestry, and she's the co-founder of Known Holdings, which is Black, Indigenous, Latino, and Asian American owned. Redhorse Mole says access to ownership is broken for most entrepreneurs of color, and that's why she co-founded Known Holdings, to encourage a more equitable distribution of capital. And we're doing that by uh, looking at the entire system of access to capital. So it includes asset management, asset allocation, investment banking, mergers and acquisitions, and as well as back office support. So really the entire cycle of access to capital. We look at ownership, and that's really the piece that has been missing in many of our communities, because what ownership ends up leading to is also power and voice in those communities. And so when you look at a community, and I'm going to use my community, the tribal community, we have really been left out of ownership because of a lot of federal government principles around the tribal land and how we're able to or, or not, you know, um, use our land as uh, equity to build businesses and to be owners. It's really been a detriment to our communities. Red Horse Mole says philanthropy is one way to help people from underserved communities get started or grow their businesses, but it isn't enough. She used the analogy of teaching a person to fish rather than giving them a fish. I go beyond that and say, why don't we support him so that he can start a fishing business, buy a fleet of fishing boats, hire people in the community, someday go public with his commercial fleet, and then really give back to the community in significant ways. We see it happen with white founders, but when we think about black, indigenous, and people of color, the way America has been sort of brainwashed into thinking is that we need philanthropic dollars, that we are all programmatic. Let's help the black family or let's help the native people. And that is what we are trying to break away from that mindset at known. It's about ownership and true building of those businesses that can scale. Known Holdings doesn't help businesses with startup funding, nor does it simply give a company a lump sum and walk away. It's for companies that already have a start, but need help in scaling up, whether that's assistance with marketing, the back office, compliance, legal issues, business development, even IT systems. 20 to 30% of small businesses in this country are in fact started by founders of color. However, less than one-tenth of 1% make it to going public on the capital markets or having a major acquisition event that will make them like a Twitter or a Facebook or an Airbnb or even a Ford Motor Company or a Target or Goldman Sachs. And what I realized being in this industry for so long is that the way capital scales companies isn't necessarily broken, but access to that system is broken and it defaults to white males. We're more focused on that gap of the middle markets and would like to help businesses sort of get past this. Once they're past a small business, how do we then scale them to being maybe a small cap, mid cap, large cap in the public equity traded markets? When we first started Known, we wanted to see if our thesis as it were and our belief in how we shift capital could help. And we assisted a black fund manager who, when we started, had about $100 million under assets, under management, and was really struggling with marketing and sort of back office. They weren't attached to any institution where they were getting help. And by the way, that's how many non-minority managers actually scale. They're, they're attached to some one of the big banks, one of the big institutions. And so we, we did this as sort of a test case. And by the end of our work with helping them with their back office, helping them with business development, helping them just all kinds of support. 
they're now close to a billion dollars of assets under management. Red Horse Mole says there's also a business case to be made for the kind of work known holding does. When you think about the new majority in the sense that people of color will be in the majority in a few years, the census data tells us that if we don't shift this capital and start thinking about equitable distribution, it's actually a lost business opportunity. Firms that only cater to white male uh, investors and white male-led funds and white male-led companies will become irrelevant. So for me, it's a passion, and I believe it's philosophical and ethical, but for many people, it's a business case. There's another company that helps entrepreneurs, especially entrepreneurs of color, grow their businesses. It's part of a company you've probably heard of. At Google for Startups, we've been really focused on how do we help level the playing field, specifically for underrepresented founders. That's Lisa Gavelber. She's the founder of Grow with Google, the company's tech-skilling workforce development initiative. The Google for Startups funds offer qualified founders or entrepreneurs $100,000 in capital to start or scale up their businesses. Less than 1% of venture capital goes to Black founders, and less than 2% of venture capital goes to Latinx founders. We also know that when you fund these types of founders, you help create intergenerational wealth. We started our Black Founders Fund in 2020, and since then, we have put $30 million of non-dilutive capital into startups that were founded by Black founders. And those founders have been able to raise over $300 million off of the back of our funding. And that was always the goal was to um, kind of seed the ecosystem, to pay attention to these founders. Not only do we help them succeed, but I think our investment is a signaling effect in the industry and helps other funders get energized around these founders. Gavelber says the founders funds come with a lot more than just financial support. They offer crucial mentorship. It's useful on learning to do marketing and storytelling about their company. It's also really useful around sales. So we have a whole sales academy that teaches you how to sell to customers, which I think is really helpful to folks. And then of course, technical mentoring. So what we see is that over 80% of these startups have used the money to be able to hire new employees. About 80% say that just having access to this funding has helped them grow their revenue and really helps them accelerate conversations with other investors. Gavelber says the funds can also act as job-creating engines. In our Black Founders Fund, we know that 82% of our recipients have used the fund to hire new employees and they tend to often hire in their own communities and hire more people of color. These really do help not only create intergenerational wealth, but they really help uplift the communities in which the startups operate. As for who qualifies, Gavelper says Google for Startups focuses on the same thing any funder would emphasize. What is the business idea? How has the business had momentum? Obviously, it's always a little bit about the founder themselves and the leadership that they've demonstrated. One of the best things about our Founders Fund, both the Black Founders Fund and the Latino Founders Fund, is that it's not just about the money. Each of those founders has received $100,000 in non-dilutive capital, so Google's not taking any equity from the founders, but it's a lot more than that. We give them coaching. We give the founders themselves coaching around a variety of topics. We provide um, mentoring, whether that's technical mentoring or other mentoring. We give them PR support and help them tell their story. We also give mental health coaching to founders. A lot of founders tell us that's one of the most useful things actually we're providing, 
But then, of course, we also give them cloud credits. So in case they want to get up and running on Google Cloud, we help them do that. And they receive over $100,000 in cloud credits as well. I really think one of the best parts we're doing is building that community of founders who now know each other, who may never have met otherwise, who served as mentors and thought partners and supporters and ecosystem builders together. And I think that's one of the most special things about this program. We met with one recipient of Google's Latino Founders Fund, someone working to build tech skills in K-12 classrooms. I don't really have a network of wealthy friends. Um, I, I don't really have access to venture capital firms. It, it makes it tough. You know, I'm currently in Buffalo, New York, and it's not really an epicenter for education technology. So I've always had to gravitate outside of the area to do my networking and fundraising and getting people to believe in, in the business idea. That's Oscar Pedroso. He's founder and CEO of Thimble.io, a hands-on STEM program to teach students skills relevant in today's workforce. That includes robotics, coding, blockchain, cybersecurity, anything that you can think of that's in high demand today in the workforce is what we're trying to bring into the classroom. The, the hands-on piece is we create these uh, reusable kits where kids can build anything from a robot to a drone to a kitchen timer, all different types of projects to get kids engaged. Part of that offering includes training for teachers, both STEM and non-STEM teachers. And then we have a software, a lesson software that has video tutorials and step-by-step -step instructions to help kids build these projects in several environments, not just during the school day, it could be after school or in the library. Pedroso says the inspiration for Thimble.io goes back to his experiences on the high school robotics team. He went on to study math in college, and then he taught it in high school. While some of those skills for building the company came from those robotic classes, others he had to pick up. You're working on building robots and learning all the hard skills, but with that comes all the soft skills, how to ideate, how to test, how to prototype, how to iterate and, and bring something to actual fruition. So having that in high school certainly has helped tremendously. I'm really good with numbers. Along the way, I've, I've learned lots of personable skills. I worked in the hospitality industry for a little bit as a bartender and server. And uh, I particularly enjoyed it. I didn't know it at the time, but when you're in those type of positions, you're, you're in front of a lot of people. You eventually learn how to read people. You eventually learn how to sell, be persuasive and, you know, um, in selling. And so all of these skills, I, I would say, have definitely contributed a lot to helping me build Thimble. I'm always learning. Part of that is just failing along the way, you know, having these little fails, but you get back up and, and do it all over again. And you experience those quick wins eventually. The biggest challenge came when Pedroso needed seed funding for the business. He applied to business incubators and accelerators, which was helpful. But then he found out about the Google for Startups program, and he was accepted into the first cohort of the Latino Founders Fund. You know, normally I'm like the only Latino guy in, in a room of founders here in Buffalo. And when you're part of a program like Google for Startups, you're like, wow, I'm now one of like a bunch of founders of color. You know, it's just a totally different dynamic there. It was very timely for us because one of the challenges we experienced winning all of these RFPs, um, these vendor agreements with these schools, is we have a pipeline of about 10,000 schools. That's a lot of schools. And, uh, and so 
to effectively sell into these districts, you need a pretty solid marketing and sales force. Part of what we used this money for was to hire essential business development and sales reps. We used all the money for that, actually, and then some, you know, some of our own capital that we had to hire one business development representative and then two sales field reps. The business development, the otherwise known as a BDR, are in charge of qualifying leads. And then our two field reps are in charge of doing those demos, closing, you know, attend in-person events. Uh, and, and sort of manage that whole pipeline. Without that, it would have been very difficult. I mean, I was the one selling for a long time, and this helped me afford bringing on talent. His company's reusable kits, software, and tutorials were made for students in grades 5 through 12, but the company's working on expanding to younger students as well. Right now, they're in 41 school districts, including New York City, Atlanta, and Dallas. Their reach is around 50,000 students across 330 schools, and right now, Thimble.io has grown to six full-time and five part-time employees. When you're in a state like Mississippi, and when a black family has $150,000 in income, and a white family with thirty to 40000 is more likely to get approved for a mortgage loan than that family with $150,000, there's systemic discrimination, institutional bias in the primary systems that provide access to capital. And home ownership is the primary source of wealth for most households in the country. And so you have built-in disparities in who can achieve wealth and pass that on to their families. And that has been the case for generations. That's Bill Bynum, the CEO of Hope, which includes Hope Credit Union, Hope Enterprise Corporation, and Hope Policy Institute. Hope started in Mississippi, Arkansas, and the Louisiana Delta as a business loan fund. Its mission is to bring more resources into these and other historically underserved places. For budding entrepreneurs, that can mean the difference between building a business and never getting it off the ground. When you think about what entrepreneurs use to start their business is resources from their own pocket or friends and family. And when your immediate network is so disproportionately under-resourced, it's really incredibly difficult for entrepreneurs of color to start small businesses, uh, to start any kind of business. You know, 96% of all black businesses are sole proprietorships. So they're small mom and pop businesses, but they're vital to these communities. Getting funding to help a new business take off can have a multiplier effect in these communities. Black employers are more likely to employ black employees, particularly lower skill when you have education gaps as well. They're vital to the lifeblood of these communities. Hope is a small financial institution, and it can help launch all new businesses in these communities. That's why Bynum says there's an important role for minority lending institutions. Whether it's black credit unions, black and brown credit unions, black-owned banks, uh, loan funds, uh, community development financial institutions uh, that are led by and that serve communities of color play in the financial system. It's interesting that black banks are likely to be located in a black community 60% of the time. Only 6% of white banks have a presence in black communities. So just by virtue of proximity, financial institutions that are owned by people of color 
are going to have a larger presence and as a result, provide more access to capital for disproportionately underserved populations. And, and it's encouraging that there's an increased recognition of the vital role that these institutions play. One entrepreneur we spoke with had thought a lot about her community before starting her business, specifically thinking about food waste and how some areas, mainly poorer areas, are food deserts. My full name is Tania Pina. My title is founder and CEO of Renewable, and the company is called Renewable. Pita's background is not in biology or plant pathology. Seven years ago, she was working in financial services in New York City. She was also volunteering as a test prep teacher at a Harlem high school. It was at the school where she had an idea about food, nutrition, and waste. And what I felt was that after observing, you know, what these kids were bringing as food options for lunch, you would see quite directly how their attention started to kind of fall off because of the not the most nutritious fresh food options. It leads to more problematic challenges that all involve health and the access to nutrition. And even though, you know, at that time, New York City was spending $77 million to export its food waste. So how can we increase the supply of ideally less chemically laden or zerically chemically grown food, closer proximity to urban areas, and do it in a way that we can enable more farms um, to increase that, that volume of supply. So the main thought was, if I can take food waste and just like it be used for regenerative agriculture and open field farms, do that for indoor growing, because even back in 2015, I saw what the challenges are we're facing today. Pina says her company, Renewable, can be a solution to some of those challenges. It has two products. One is more of a process that makes food waste compatible as a fertilizer nutrient source. The second product is a nutrient that can be an alternative to soil. There's a lot of open field, traditional field farms that have on-farm waste, whether it's crop residue, so it could be the fibers, could be the leaf stalks, or simply some of that waste is just left in the field because they're unable to recover it for a diversion to a food bank or elsewhere. And so we've gotten a lot of interest from farms wanting to do what's best with that waste in a way that's cost-effective and ideally turn it into a value-added input or something that reduces their cost to continue to produce food. It was a big mission, and to raise money, she had to educate the investment community. Renewable is doing well. She's raised a little over $3 million since she founded the company in 2015. She says that as a black founder, she needs to raise even more money to be taken seriously by big investors. They recognize that we largely bootstrapped for a good amount of time, and they held that against us, whereas most others that perhaps don't identify as someone like me or similar would oftentimes that's applauded for not taking the capital and taking that amount of time to bootstrap. So criteria or the measurement or evaluation, it's higher, have to, having to prove a lot more, shorter amount of time, less capital. The main takeaway from that is it's all about signaling when it comes to investors. And when they see that that amount of time or this amount of capital only has been raised, that it's like it works against you. It's not a favorable story sometimes, whereas I think in other cases, especially for those that money tends to be attracted more easily, it's oftentimes applauded. Pina does have some advice for other investors looking at communities of color. Always be talking about what it is that you want to work on, because whether it's too soon or even right on time, 
you never know who may be a touch point away for either wanting to invest, connecting you to people that may be excited to work on that mission or, or idea or want to be involved as an advisor. You just never know. And so I found that to be helpful because, again, I wasn't in the field of agriculture, but it did help me to kind of get the first few team members um, on board. I think people need to treat things as if whatever they need is not going to be in abundance for tomorrow. And that's just, I've even tried to live like that, right? So think of how you can do things if you had half the money available, half the resources available, half the time, and then you get really creative and really resilient when it comes to getting something done. And, and I think that's a very powerful factor that allows us to be more resilient during these days. You've been listening to episode two of Work in Progress, Economic Mobility Through Entrepreneurship. Coming up in episode three, we'll talk with some Latino entrepreneurs who will share what it took to turn their ideas into a business. We're not Czech, we're not Polish, we're not English or German, we're Mexican-American, so we understand our palate, our culture, our preferred flavors, and we said, well, how could that show up in our brewing process? I'm Ramona Schindelheim, Editor-in-Chief of Working Nation. This series was produced in partnership with the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation.